0: Bam, we're live. Oh. Can you hear me, Jorge? Yeah, I can hear you. I was out in the middle of the street. I don't have cell service at my house and you're on a droid, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, so I'm trying to send you a text and I'm, and I'm like, Oh my God, the show started three minutes ago and I'm out there trying to get like some cell service so I can send my text to the droid. Cause I did, cause it kept saying it was bouncing, but I guess you got it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I got it. I got it. I try to be on time for things.
0: Oh, you're awesome. I, I mean, you were you were live on your Instagram 18 seconds ago.
1: Yeah, man, I was doing a little around the world with you know a bunch of just pissed off California parents regarding the the recent news from today.
0: Yeah, no one wants no one wants to be forced to inject their kids with anything, right? I mean, no one should no one should feel no matter what your whether you want them to get the injection or not, no one should feel comfortable being forced <laughs> to do it, right? Exactly,
1: can, especially coming from the government, that's the scariest thing. That's the scariest thing.
0: It is a weird, weird time. Were you ever a, uh, a liberal like me? Were you ever tree hug? I mean, tree hugging hippie like peace, love? Uh, I actually drum for circle me,
1: bro, for me. Bro, it was um, I was so I actually was so tuned out of politics. I wasn't anything till um, um, you know, after twenty sixteen is when I started to to want to get into like reporting on on politics. I'm kind of more of a, I would say. Just down the middle, kind of independent guy that just really hates the establishment and anyone who's screwing over regular people.
0: <laughs> right. That's what I want to be too. I want to be like so chill and like you do whatever you want. But the thing is, is I I, I accidentally had three kids, and now like <laughs> I have a reason. Like before, I didn't even care. Like if you were to rob my house, I'd jump out the window and go like get a cup of coffee, do what you want, like peace, love, let all right, object. Right. But now I can't do that. Now I got to like shoot you dead in the house because I got kids. I have to protect. It's so weird. I don't want to have to protect anything like that, but where, where it's my are duty. you based out of? Santa Cruz, California.
1: Okay, cool, cool.
0: Born and raised in Berkeley. Okay, cool. So just, just you know, the the heart. I was raised to, um, you know, uh, kind of hate the country, love Obama, love Hillary, love Jimmy right, Carter, right. think Reagan was the devil, and, and my parents did a good job of, of convincing me of all that stuff. But um, were your
1: parents kind of like those California liberal hippies?
0: No, they actually weren't. My dad's a fucking hardcore immigrant. You know, born in a, but probably very similar to your parents. Born in Lebanon in a, in a 10 okay. by 10 concrete hut. No electricity, no running water. Had to walk, you know, 20 yards to take a piss or a shit. Had 10 brothers and sisters when his brothers, he was the oldest. Um, crazy stories, you know, rode a donkey to school. No, like even when I went to his town and visited in Lebanon, you know, uh, ten, fifteen years ago, they they still didn't have landlines, they didn't have phones. Nuts. I am Armenian, my I'm on both sides. Okay. So my family the the history there is is that the Armenians basically had in nineteen fifteen, just prior to World War One, had to flee Armenia because they were getting slaughtered by the Turks. The Armenian genocide. Are you in LA? Where are you?
1: I'm in I'm in Palmville, so I'm in I'm north of LA. I'm about like an hour away north. So usually like if you're in LA and you want to go to Vegas in car you usually pass my town, uh, but yeah, I'm in, I'm in Palmdale, man. I'm in the high desert and just got done uh, filming for two months out here is there's a, there's, we have a cartel issue right out here where they're taking over the deserts, starting up illegal marijuana operations and then they're smuggling migrants into work them, and there's gunfire fights out there. So we did a full on investigation piece that we're going to release that documentary next week. So it's going to be uh it's going to be really good, man. I'll keep you posted.
0: Is it Armenian cartel?
1: Uh, the Armenian crime organization is involved as well. It's the Mexican uh, cartel, and it's a Chinese mafia. So, uh, oh,
0: I yeah. love it. It's, that's very inclusive. I, I'm glad they have the <laughs> DEI council on that. It's, it's a nice yeah. balance of slightly melanated um, Mexican people, some some borderline Arabs that are confused often as Armenians and Arabs, and then we have the Chinese representing the Asians. That's very sweet. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's going to be good, though. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to send it to you, bro. I hope you will have some homosexuals in there with some transgender Armenians and and and, and uh, can you sprinkle in some Jews, please, for us? <laughs> okay. Hey man, don't get me don't get me canceled here, buddy. Um. Uh. Yeah, it's scary because I got canceled. My Instagram is so shadow banned; it's scary. They won't even let me go live anymore.
1: Oh really? Okay. I'm 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 hoping they don't take me down just for having some conversations with parents regarding the. Vaccine mandate stuff. Yeah, um, you're
0: you're you're on thin ice with that shit. Be careful.
1: Yeah, man. yeah. I was like, I don't know how 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 many more I could do with those, and I probably probably might might calm down the the temperatures on that. Maybe you um, should interview
0: like- some people who are who are like for um, forced uh injections on little kids.
1: Yeah, no, that that'd be good too. But the um, I mean, unfortunately, those people just never want to never want to talk to me. And uh, I really love I love going live at the border because I like. Showing people like in real time when things are happening in the action, um, like that, it kind of gives them also a different perspective on the issue, too. So, um, so please, oh, um, big tech overlords, do not ban me. Uh, please do not ban
0: me you. either. I love yeah. the money I make on my YouTube channel.
1: <laughs> oh my god. Um,
0: oh, Jorge, I saw you did an interview with these two old white dudes, and um, the, the way they started it off with the interview is just really pissed me off because. I realized how foolish they sounded, and that's exactly how I was going to start my interview with you. And I realized, oh, fuck, I'm just an old white dude too, I guess. You are truly a fucking remarkable human being. You're – from from what I can tell, and and maybe this is just because I think I was you. I think I am you kind of, except now I have kids. Your work ethic is second to none. You're a fucking Labrador. You don't give a shit. Someone throws the tennis ball, you're going to get it. There's no – there's a bad, there's no bad throws. There's no, it went in the ocean. There's no, it rolled through some shit. You're going to get the tennis ball and you're going to bring it back. Like you, it's crazy. My sister sent me a, um, my sister sent me, my sister's a little bit older than me. And she sent me an Instagram link to your account. She's all, dude, you got to see this guy, Jorge Ventura. And I went there and I'm just like, what is the story with this guy? Do it when I interview him, do I ask him about everything he's done? Or do I ask him about what it takes to be great? You are all the shit that the Tony Robbins and and all those and, and all the Navy Seals and the Goggins and just all these things that people talk about, you you're doing it in real time. So anyone who wants to see it, who can kind of, in my opinion, transcend your stories and just be like, dude, this guy's 26 years old and he's fucking everywhere. You're not. You don't. You're not married, huh?
1: No, no, no. And I do want to say, wow, thank you, man. That 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 means a lot. Um hearing that from you i've never i've never actually heard anyone um tell me that but no i really really that's what
0: those other two old white guys were telling you too they were just in love with you and i was like oh shit that's how i feel about this guy we can live vicariously through you i don't have the energy quite what you do but man you're doing it you're you're doing it
1: yeah and you know for me man i'm just i feel really grateful um just because like since i was 13 years old I, i Already, kind of knew I wanted to be a journalist, and my, you know, this was a, this was my dream, and I feel like, um, you know, I feel like I had a big chip on my shoulder because my story isn't like I went to high school and I got good grades and I went to a a, a nice university and I got an internship. It's, it, my my story was all grind, man. I was, um, in high school, I was actually just a knucklehead. You know, I was on drugs all the time. I was drinking. Uh, I had a huge drinking problem at the age of like sixteen years old. My my mom and dad were pretty close to um, sending me back to El Salvador, which is my, my, my parents' home country. They were just so done with me that they, they thought that they had to send me to another country just for me to get my act together. Um, after high school, I barely graduated. I'm talking about you know C's, just just good enough grades to pass. So all of my friends went to large universities. They went to Pepperdine, UCLA, USC. I stayed back in my hometown. I felt like a loser.
0: Which was Palmdale?
1: Which was Palmdale. And I felt like a loser staying back. And basically right after I worked a bunch of kind of odd jobs, I worked I just worked a bunch of sales jobs. And that's where I think I started really earning my chops was in the sales game, learning how to close deals, what learning were you selling? the power. Um I I started off selling uh um insurance for AfLAC. So started off with AfLAC, went to gym sales, went to self, you know, worked at Sprint T Mobile ATNT. And I did that till about twenty one years old. And um I actually fell into a, just just a huge depression when I was 21 because I just knew that I wasn't fulfilling my purpose. I knew I wasn't doing what I was designed to do. Uh, um, are you my, a
0: religious guy?
1: I I am a little bit. I don't want to say like I'm I'm, I'm fully, but I'm, I I believe in God. I'm trying to you know kind of work on that aspect of my life. Better.
0: Okay. Sorry, um, I interrupted. So at 21, you were like you weren't feeling fulfilled. Go on.
1: Yeah, was wasn't feeling you know fulfilled. Um, fell into a, a big depression and I was making great money um, being a, I was actually a sales manager for uh, for a sprint store, which is pretty good to, at 21 years old to be man- managing people who are older than you in the sales game. But I fell into a huge depression. The back of my mind, I always wanted to be in media and my original dream was I wanted to be a sports reporter. I actually hated politics, thought it was boring. So I wanted to be on ESPN, I wanted to be on Fox Sports and um, I remember I called my mom and I was like, you know, what, what should I do? Um, She's like, I think, you know, you should go back to school, drop everything. And, you know, I think the biggest thing is I would always ask myself, I would be like, you know, if you die today, all you will be remembered is is a kid who sold an iPad to somebody. You, you have no legacy. You're not going to leave anything behind for your kids. And I kept thinking about my parents, too, how they made this dangerous journey escaping El Salvador during the Civil War. And, you know, for them to escape El Salvador just for me to work a cell phone job to me was just almost like a disgrace to my family's name. So I went back to school I went to community college and I just started earning my earning my chops there I got really um, I think my mindset that helped me when I was going to community college with other journalist students was I just got that competitive mindset kind of like that Kobe Bryant I'm gonna work I'm gonna outwork you mm. I want you to know that I'm crazy I'm gonna you know if, 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 if you know a big thing in my in my school was every three weeks we had to turn in a news story so I said f that you know every three weeks. I would turn in three. The other students would turn in one. By the time they had two, I had six. They had three. I had nine. Um, I wanted them to know that I was just insane about uh, what I was doing. And I just kept covering sports. And then little by little, um, I got drawn into politics, man. It happened right after the 2016 election. When I would talk to my friends on the right, they said that they um, felt like, you know, Trump didn't get a fair share. But then when I would also talk to my friends on the left, they also told me that they felt like Bernie didn't get a fair share. So... I actually never voted before, and I was like, you know what? Maybe I could be this down the middle voice where I just keep it real with my audience. I still haven't voted, and the reason for that is because in college I got taught that journalists back in the seventies, eighties, um, actually wouldn't vote because they would report on politics. It was it was almost like an unwritten rule. So, yeah, man, just kind of jumped in there and and really just just grinded every step of the way.
0: Uh, I want to go back a second to your parents. Tell me, tell me uh, what, where did your parents meet?
1: So my parents knew each other back in El Salvador, but they didn't like, kind of like kindle and like like rekindle, should I say, and meet and all that stuff and, and begin the relationship till they both got into the United States. My mom came into the country um, with some other family members. Then my dad actually had a run away from the from the army because he was forced into the civil war. My dad my dad was forced into the war at the age of fourteen. Around 20 years old, he finally made, he finally ran away to the United States. And my, the reason my dad, the, when he told me that he ran away is when he had a conversation with my grandpa. And my grandpa told my dad, he said, there's no way you're going to have kids in this country. You're going to die a very young man. You better just make your, you better make, make your run now. And, um, what you know, are the bordering had,
0: countries to El Salvador in the, in the north uh, and south?
1: In, in Central America it would be Guatemala, Nicaragua, and like Honduras.
0: Uh huh. I've been down there quite a bit. I was not, not doing what you were not uh not doing journalist stuff I was doing documentary films. I worked for a company named uh Vitamin Angels. We were giving vitamin A to malnourished children. It was it was a trip. It always it always felt safe to me but El Salvador especially we were always told dude like it shit could get crazy.
1: Yeah, man. It was it was um it was just a really dangerous time, you know. How did I, they I,
0: make I, it into the US legally or or illegally?
1: Um illegally, but now they they are uh, both uh citizens here.
0: And and what what is that journey like? Was it the same basic journey for the both of them?
1: Yeah, um, you know, back in the day, um, you know, making the journey to the U.S. actually wasn't really that difficult just because um, they really didn't have border. Like the, the whole immigration influx of of what we're seeing now with the migrants, you know, they didn't have that back in the 90s like that. So for them, it was not too difficult to get into the country. But then, you know, they did work and get their citizenship over the years.
0: So they basically you have to somehow doing bus or hitchhiking Make your way to the border, and then and then then you have to pay someone to help you cross.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That's that's basically the story for the majority of of uh, of uh, of Latinos in the nineties.
0: And and it's it's interesting because my family, um, they came through Ellis Island, but that but that was you know. Oh. Well my dad came my my on my mom's side they came through Ellis Island her her parents and my dad came on a scholarship at 18 years old or some through a seminary school he was studying to become a priest not because I think he wanted to be a priest but that was the only kind of education you could get in Lebanon uh, in Beirut where he was where he was 17 years old and you know the brother of ten nine younger brothers and sisters okay so they cross and they and they meet in Palmdale where do they meet
1: they meet down in um, in uh, Los Angeles, actually.
0: Okay. And then they get married and have you?
1: Um, they actually have three kids then get married. Okay. Um, my, my, Same I, with
0: my I, wife. We had one kid and then got married.
1: Yeah, I'm the oldest. So my mom had me when she was uh, 30. And then um, they had my you know younger brother and sister. And then um, uh, they got married. So they did everything uh, backwards.
0: <laughs> Perfect. That's the way to do it. That's the smart way. H- how old are your brothers and sisters?
1: My brother is 22 and my sister's 19.
0: Oh, okay. Shit. So they're adults too. So you guys are close.
1: Yeah. Is yeah, your we, family
0: tripping on you?
1: Yeah, they're they're extremely worried when I do the the front line coverage type of stuff. They definitely my mom. My mom's the old school type where you know she like stays up all night type. Uh, can't go home till like I get home type. Um, but she's 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 been getting better at it.
0: Are you still living at home?
1: I'm still living at home here, but. Um, to be honest, it doesn't feel like I'm living at home just because I'm always on the road. Uh-huh. So that's why myself, I haven't committed to kind of like get an apartment yet or anything just because right now I'm just so much you know, on the road with, with what we're doing that it just kind of doesn't really make sense for me right now.
0: There's no reason to move out. I was at home until I was 34 years old. My mom tried to kick me out three or four times. I'm 49 <laughs> now. I did the exact same thing you did. I have three kids and I'm doing very, 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 very well. But I never looked up. I was just like you. I just kept my head down and worked like, fuck it. Like, what do I care? Even when my, my wife and I bought our first house, we didn't move into it for three years because we were too busy working. We just stayed in this little shithole apartment we had. It was crazy. Um, so, okay. So do you have a girlfriend? No. No girlfriend, no wife, just you're in, but you're crushing it. You're everywhere. Like I said, you, are, it, well, we'll get to that. So your parents have you, and you, and you basically just have a typical. It sounds like you had a typical high school life. Sounds like you were a little more advanced than me. I didn't get into drugs in high school, but I just drank a lot. I always had like a bottle of Jägermeister or Goldschlager in my locker. I was always drinking on the weekends. I was always drinking.
1: Yeah, those, same thing, man. I was yeah. always drinking too. Had the Coronas. I was a big uh yeah. whiskey guy, so I was always on the Jack and Daniels. Yep. Yeah and um you know the thing is you know my parents were in, were in my life they're great great parents I was just literally just a knucklehead like I was just a rebel anything that they tell me I just did the opposite
0: workaholics um, so just, your parents were yeah, workaholics I was
1: every kid. what was that
0: were your parents workaholics
1: yeah you know I had a stay-at-home mom which was a, a really good uh, good thing I don't think I would have survived without the stay-at-home mom my dad is the workaholic he's a trucker so he's Always on the road, working sixteen-hour days. Um, you know, brutal, brutal job being a being, being a tucker. I really have a lot of res- respect for him here.
0: And you speak? Uh, you're bilingual. Yeah, I speak Spanish. And you're stoked now.
1: Yeah, man. Because it um the the thing now. What I love about the Spanish now is that you know, especially with with journalism, is I'm able to get more out of the story than maybe a you know a reporter who's not. So. Um, yeah, it's been a big blessing. I don't speak the most perfect Spanish. I lost it over the years, but I'm going to be practicing again just to get it back at that 100% level.
0: And it's, and it's a good, it's a good time to be Mexican, El Salvadorian, um, fucking anything besides white. It's a good time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it is. Um, a lot of, a lot, when I was covering the riots a lot, that actually kind of saved me a little bit that I was this kind of brown guy. If I was a white guy, I might've got jumped faster or something like that. So it's been a, it's been a blessing.
0: And you used to have that killer mustache.
1: Yeah, even the fun. The funny thing is, too, is when I got hired at the at the Daily Callers, my the editor told me he's like, "Hey, man, um, um, the good thing about you being like a Jorge is you're the only Jorge in Washington D.C. So there you go." I was like, "That's true."
0: Um, Jorge, what is the Daily Caller?
1: The Daily Caller is a online a news organization, you know, that, you know, that does news that were founded by Tucker Carlson in 2010.
0: Oh, shit. I had no idea.
1: Yeah. And Daily Caller is actually the first media company that ever gave me an internship, which I was really grateful. And they gave me that internship last May. And um, I'm really glad they did because all this would have probably not
0: have happened. And do they do they trip on how hard you work? You're like, I'll go. I'll go, I'll, I'll go. Like someone calls you and you're like, they did not, don't even get three words out of their mouth. And you're like, I'll go.
1: Yeah. I think, I think what they trip is about is that, you know, and I try to tell, I told them in the beginning, it's like, you know, I'm not the type of guy, like they don't need to do anything to motivate me. I already want to go out there, work hard. I I want to leave a legacy behind. So I don't need anyone to, to do that. You know, I just need the, the freedom to go do it. And they've, they've been really great at, at doing that. There'll be some times where, they they tell me don't go and I was just I don't care man I'm a rebel dude and, and in media you got to break rules and I'll still go and then I'll do the one of the best covers and they'll end up loving it um so I I you know I always want to be out there I want to um it's almost kind of like like an athlete you know he always wants to compete he always wants to compete for championships I think I kind of had him say mindset I always want to be out there I, I want to be competing with some of the best journalists I know that I could be up there you know and just c- continue working at it. so yeah man I, lo- I love to be out there and um I, I, um, yeah, I get, I, I kind of get like, you know how a lot of people get what it's called FOMO, fear of missing out when like, you know, their friends are at a rave. I get FOMO when I'm like, i not at the border or when I'm not at one of some of these big stories, you know, I, I want to get out there as much as I can.
0: You do. You seem addicted. You seem addicted to wanting to be at the spot. I totally get that feeling. Um, what is your, is your go-to camera, your, your, your phone?
1: Yeah, so I've been using my phone just for years because we've been able to break stories onto Twitter really quick. But um, now that I've, I've 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 been able to work with a producer a few times on like um I did earlier this year I worked with a producer on producing like a mini documentary and then we just got done with this documentary on the cartels and after that I've been like I've been really wanting to go to mo- something you know just just like higher quality stuff because I really want to ump up really just take my 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 quality of content to the to the next level. But I do think. My work kind of shows anyone that you know. A lot of people always ask me all the time, you know, what do I need to start up? I'm like, man, I'm I'm on a phone with a with a $25 uh, tripod from Amazon. You know, I'm not on this $1,000 kit, but now that I am, you know, uh, you know, at the level that I am, I do want to step up the quality of content for my audience. So I do want to step up kind of the, the gear that I'm working with, but I'm still on the Samsung phone. I'm still on a, on a tripod. So there's absolutely no excuses for anyone. Not to get after it. I'm still grinding with what I did with, with day one. Uh, so there's no excuses for anyone out there.
0: I'm going to say something that's going to really bum out a bunch of you guys. We never ask what do we need to do to get started. I can't explain it to you. We're fucking Labradors. You throw the ball and we start running. To a fault. Maybe we didn't even see you throw it. That's why you've seen that. Like when you can trick a dog, you can like pretend to throw the ball and they start running. That's how we are. That's how me and Jorge are. We would never ask, "How do I get started?" We would just start running off in a direction and put it together as we go. When you ask that question, you already—you have to be honest with yourself. Are you asking that question because you really give a fuck, or because you're building a wall for yourself, or making up an excuse for why not to get started? What do you mean with how to get started? What? Just go down to fucking Tijuana and start talking to people. Start telling the human interest story. Just start trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, it really is like that. Am no, I that. Wrong?
1: that- no, that that that's true, man. I always get that that question. It's like, dude, you just gotta get out there. And you know, when you first start out, it's it's not sexy. I mean, you know this, man. It's, right? not, it's
0: never sexy. It's not it's, even sexy. It's not even sexy when you're at the top of your game. Because exactly. Yeah. It's, it's never it's, sexy.
1: It's never gonna be. um oh. no. Um, you know, sexy, and I think my, uh, you know, I, my- it gets
0: worse. They make you wear nicer clothes. They make you work with other assholes. They that make you true. fix lighting and put makeup on. It only gets worse. It's worse. That, that,
1: that's true. And I think worse. my, yeah, one of my advices I think for people would be is just get going. And you you want to you want your work to be at a point where people around you. And I read this in a book. It's not coming from me. I got it from from a, from a Grant Cardone book. Is you want? Oh, people- is Grant
0: Cardone cool? Oh, we'll circle back. Finish what you're saying and then I don't ask well, you guys.
1: Um, you want people around you to think that you are crazy. You know, you want people to be like, hey, man, are you all right? Like you're always out there. You know, you're working on the weekends. You're not getting paid. That's the biggest thing that I always got when I started is why are you doing all this stuff? You're not getting paid. You're not getting paid. Um, you want people around you to think that you are a psycho. And if people think you are a psycho, you are uh, probably on the right path. But if people don't think you're a psycho, you're probably not on the right path.
0: Another one. Jorge just dropped another one. Here's another reason why we know you're not going to make it because you asked how much do you get paid? So there's two things. If you ask, what do I need to do to get started? We know you're not going to make it. By the way, these are in context. Don't take this so literally. <laughs> this is in context. I'm generalizing. But if you ask, what do I need to do to get started? We know you're not going to make it. And then the second thing is, is um, how much do I get paid? We know you're not going to make it. No, like not. Jorge is comes – Jorge goes to work all day, comes home, kisses his mom on the cheek, doesn't worry about what kind of car he drives, what kind of house he lives in. He eats the food (laughs) his mom fucking cooks him. Then he says, Mom, I got to go in my room and I got to start getting on the computer and I'm going to work until 2 in the morning. I have this show to do with Fox. I have to fucking – Tucker Carlson sent me a nice tweet and I want to read it like a thousand times before I go to bed. I want to do this. I want to do that. And then finally he falls asleep and then he starts up and goes again in the morning. Well, the rest of you are worried about like – Is your camera lens clean? Um, Does this girl like you? Do do I need to rent an apartment? We're not doing that shit. We're not doing that Dude, that is 100, man. You you nailed it, bro. We're not doing that shit. (laughs) And and, and, and so so – and and I'm doing it again now with this podcast. I'm going to fucking take over, and I'm slowly taking over. And what's crazy is is that I want people to just jump on board and ride my coattails, but no one wants to because no one wants to – do a podcast at 830 at night with Jorge Ventura. It's too late. I've been up all day. I already worked out. I took a shower. I'm with my family and kids. Fuck you. And you ain't going to be on the train. You ain't going to the top of the mountain. Okay. So, like that so that's two things. Um, uh, I, I want to come back to Grant Cardone because I saw him on Instagram recently and I'm, I'm just curious what he's like and, and why you're attracted to him. Um, there was a point in my career. So I had made a couple movies. They were fabulous movies, top 10 in Netflix documentaries. I had made shows for ESPN. I had done it all, right? Uh, uh, so much fucking cool shit. I was still living at home with my mom. And, um, I had written uh, two books on how to grow marijuana. I just, I was just like this, um, renaissance man, kind of like you. Just like I'll tell, just I'm a storyteller. Like let's just go, let's just go do it. And then I was, got this job on Craigslist about a guy, a guy named Howard Schiffer. He runs a company called Vitamin Angels and he takes vitamin A to malnourish children. And I started flying all over the world to crazy spots, the craziest spots in Africa, South America, Central America, India, China, just you name it. And I went there with them and I saw crazy shit. Famine, famine, kids dying like bad shit. Rock my world. But anyway, he. He I I still never thought of myself as a filmmaker. I was just a kid trying to make money. Like didn't matter how many movies I had directed or produced or how many that Forrest Whitaker or Selma Hayek had given me these awards. It didn't matter. Like I I, some people call it imposter syndrome. I just wasn't willing to fake it. I wasn't willing to call myself a director. I wasn't willing myself to call myself a can willing to call myself a cameraman. And then this guy Howard Schiffer believed in me. He started like like we'd be like in India and he'd be like, so how do you think we should frame this? And wh- how do you want to tell the story? And like, he started like giving me like so much fucking respect. And he kind of like turned me like a, like a wizard. He turned me in like, he believed in me more than I believed in myself. And I was like, fuck. And I, and I started living up to the, to his expectations. It was so weird. It was so weird. Have you had that moment where you're like, Hey, I'm just a kid out here and I just want to do this. And then all of a sudden like 30 people call you a journalist and you're like, what the fuck is going on? Did, did they just magically turn me into a journalist?
1: Yeah, and actually, had that? yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great thing, man. I actually, um, so before I got my internship at the Daily Caller, um, I was a big fan of a of a journalist. He's on he's on the Hill. He actually just went independent, doing a really good job. Uh, his name is Sagar and Jetty. He uh, co-hosted a show with Crystal Ball called Breaking Points. Uh, oh my and,
0: God, that kid yeah. is a beast.
1: Yeah, so Sagar was just um, you know him. Yes, yeah, so when I saw his show, I really got inspired to be in D.C. I, I kind of. I don't know, for some reason, th- I saw news at a whole other way, the way they were doing it, and I was just a big fan of him. And I remember sending a tweet to Sagar, kind of a, kind of like a joke, actually, because I, I just didn't think he was going to respond. So I sent him a tweet saying, hey, Sagar, my name is Jorge Ventura. I'm a student reporter at College of the Canyons. You know, Do you have any advice for a journalist like me who's trying to break into that D.C. kind of media world? And, you know, I kind of said it like a joke, like, you know, not thinking he's going to respond. And Sagar actually DM'd me back, which I was freaking out because I was a big fan of Sagar. First time I think I ever had a blue check in my inbox. And I freaked out. And Sagar said, give me a call. So I actually gave him a call. I told him my life story. And he's like, you know what? He's like, I think you'd be the right fit at the Daily Caller. Um, let me talk to them and then let's see what, what happens. So he actually connected. I'm me. sorry.
0: I missed something. Are you telling me that breaking point is just a, another branch of the daily caller?
1: No, breaking point is, is completely independent. Sog.
0: Oh, but he just knew people over there and was going to like hook you up.
1: Yeah. Cause Sager okay. actually, Sager actually used to be a white house correspondent for the daily caller.
0: Okay. My bad. Okay. So
1: Sager caught up some of, some of the editors there. He sent him my work. The editors interviewed me. They felt like I was a, I was a right fit. And, um, so in that moment, you know, you do, you do feel like you want to live up to the expectations because now you're coming in as almost like Sagar's guy as, Hey, this is the guy that Sagar scouted out.
0: He vouched for had, you.
1: Yeah. I kind of had that, that chip on my shoulder and I actually arrived in DC May 21st last year. And this is, um, you know, during the very height of the pandemic and at my first four days in DC, all I did was video editing for other reporters And May twenty fifth, so four days later, after my internship began, four days later, um, uh, Minneapolis uh, police department releases the George Floyd tapes. So uh, Minneapolis starts rioting that night. The very next day, Los Angeles starts rioting. On then on the twenty seventh, the riots came to Washington DC, and they actually started uh, black. The Black Lives Matter people started uh, rioting at the White House, where um, it got to a point that Trump actually had to go under a bunker, and. My boss called me in the in it was like the middle of night and, and was like almost screaming at me saying like, Jorge, we have no reporters on the ground. The White House just the the Trump just went in on the bunker. We need we need someone there. Can you go then can you go now? So I jumped in a you know, jumped in the Uber, got down there, and in my ten minutes of being on the ground, there was a Fox News reporter named Leland Vitter who got attacked in front of the White House. Mm. I actually filmed that attack Yes. And I had to break with what I didn't know at the time as an intern is I broke the biggest story in DC when that happened. So basically what happened is I know I'm, I'm going on a little, uh, no, t- do it, do it. Here, I love it. But after I broke that story, I mean, Fox news ran with the story, CNN, everyone, they asked Trump about it on, on Monday morning and Tucker Carlson opened up his monologue to that video. And that felt like that moment that I arrived because then my Twitter blew up. I had all these blue checks started to follow me, all these journalists in DC. So it felt like that. I, I arrived and my editors and daily call basically were like, Hey man, you know, we thought you were going to be a regular intern. You're ready to go. Like, you're ready to be <laughs> in this, this stuff. And then what, the best part of it was, you know, we didn't know at that time that the riots were going to go all summer. So that kind of gave me the lane to be the guy for the Daily Callers to just cover the, the riots all summer. And that's kind of what I would say propelled me.
0: Um, where did you sleep when you were in D.C.?
1: I actually had a – I have a – the funniest thing is we have a large Salvadoran population in Virginia – and a lot of my family is out in the Manassas area, so I would stay uh, with some uncles in Manassas. I had some family down in Belleville, Maryland, too, so I would stay stay with them. So really grateful for my family to you know for to looking out. And the reason why I bring this up too, and I'm actually glad that you did bring that up, is because the reason why so many people, just like myself, from a community college with class with parents from a working class, kids like me couldn't even get in an internship in DC because. The internship that I got was an unpaid internship. So if it wasn't for my uncle providing somewhere to stay, I would have to pay rent, all that stuff with no income. And it makes makes it really hard for working ca- working class uh, journalists to get into D.C. It's always those elites that take up all those internship spots because they could afford for them to take unpaid internships. So it kind of also creates this disadvantage because that's why a lot of these stories about working class Americans and what they are going through never get told because these people are stuck in that D.C. bubble.
0: Mm, I was thinking about going on a little rant right there. This this isn't number three, but this is back to number two again. Um, it doesn't matter that it's not fair. It's not fair for anybody. It doesn't matter that it's that, that only the DC – it doesn't matter what he just said. It doesn't matter. It's just a story. True. It doesn't matter that there's those elites. It doesn't matter. He still did it. Exactly. He he still did it. It doesn't matter. He He didn't go to fucking Cornell. He didn't go to fucking Yale. He didn't go to fucking Harvard. He fucking worked hard. He didn't say that they're taking advantage of me. They're not paying me for this internship. He didn't say any of that shit, guys. He fucking put his head down and got the tennis ball. Fucking he he got he he fucking love it. Okay, (laughs) but but even though everything is what he's saying is true, it's it's not it's not an excuse. It's just a story. It doesn't matter that it's harder for some people who gives a fuck. Those people have hardships too. Those people have hardships too. Let me tell you something. All the fucking tall, good looking people I know are fucking miserable now. The ones from high school. Sorry. No one made fun of you for having, being short and having a big nose. Now it's my fucking greatest asset. I'm funny as fuck because of that shit. But it was hard <laughs> in high school. It was hard in high school. Okay. So, um, so you're in DC and you do all the riots and you have the big breakthrough tape and, and, and and they realize oh so, so let's go back to Sager for a second. Will you pronounce his name for me? The guy from Breaking Point. Sager. Sager. Yes. Sager. So um, is Sager like so proud of you? He's like, yeah, that's my boy. He did it. I told you.
1: Yeah, man. He 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 told me the whole time. He's like he's like, hey, man, I know you're gonna do something big. I know you're gonna do something big. I have a good feeling, and you know, I didn't know what it was that time, and it really feels good, you know, making. You know, someone like that proud of you because you know when someone is gonna pick me, man. I I, I want to make sure that that it does they don't look bad in that, that that it paid off. And you know, the daily call I think is forever grateful for that for that for Sagar with that recommendation because I always you know for them it's like yo that was that was Sagar's guy and and he came through with a with a huge splash, kind of out of nowhere. You know, kid out of community college, we never heard of heard of him before out of California, and he just came in here and. And outworked the kids from Penn State, from these other big universities, and just came out and and really just grinded it, got it out, got, got it out the mud, how like they like to say in the hip hop community.
0: Um, what what is what is Sagar? Is he is he is he Indian? He's Indian. He, yep, he's Indian. Have you ever met him in person yet?
1: Yeah, we we've actually got to go lunch um, only one time because um, we've just been so busy. But it was a it was a great conversation, and and you know he he had great advice for me as a as a as a mentor. How old is he? Sagar, I believe right now is twenty nine. He might already be thirty now.
0: Yeah, he looks young as shit too. I I was scrolling through your Instagram. I went all the way back. Um, I, I didn't spend too much time on it. Well, I spent. I went all the way back to your very first post. It was July twenty first, two thousand twelve. You don't even look like the same person. And it, it, um, and your it, it's a post of you holding a microphone. It says really nervous to interview David Beckham. Did you end up interviewing David Beckham?
1: Um, I did not um, in, end up interviewing. False David. advertising. Yeah, so fake news there. <laughs> I, I, um, I I did not end up uh, interviewing David Beckham, but that um, those experiences were great. And the reason why I'm actually got so much access right there, I was had field access at the LA Galaxy game, is because my uncle was a sports reporter for NBC. So he 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 always wanted to. Give me something that could give me that vision, and he, he did a really good job with that. I really appreciate my uncle for doing that.
0: Is there a picture of you and him in one of your posts? Is he significantly older than you? Like like?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like- it should be us at a news desk, and I'm yes. wearing a purple collared shirt. That's my uncle. His name is Saul Rodriguez. Great. He's he's not only not only is he great for for just giving me that vision, but my uncle is very old school. He's not the type to be like, oh, because I work at NBC, I'm gonna give you an internship. He's the type to be really rough tough you have to earn it type of guy so he's not this like he's not a walkover he's a really, really tough individual you know you there'll be times i do that if like i do some of the best work of my life and he'll just come in and grill the shit out of me but he was great at that and you need that in life
0: um is your mom's brother or your dad's brother mom's mom's and he, he but he looks how old your mom right now
1: mom is oh my god i got a uh 50 hold on uh well no, she had me <laughs> oh my god, it's gonna be bad. Forty six, forty uh wait, 56, 56.
0: It's crazy. And a lot of the people you work with are as older, older than your mom. They're your peers.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. When well the, the the lucky thing is at the daily caller they're um the people are very young. So we we're we're we have a really young unit at the Daily Caller. My boss is Are rich-
0: young people cool? Um no, but
1: they're more creative and okay and, and looking to step out the box i would say overall young people are not cool but the people at daily color are cool because we try to give i would say kind of a different view of to what's going on
0: um and and not only are i I, just from my perspective but i'm 49 are young people not cool ah shit unless they do jujitsu the jujitsu community is amazing but are you are you still into the fight game i saw that you would
1: yeah, I I love MMA. I love boxing. I grew up in the household where like every set, you know, anytime there was a big main event Saturday, all of our family would get together, big De La Hoya fans, you know, from back in the day. Awesome. And I love I love the UFC. My first UFC fight I ever attended and still attended. I'm hoping to attend one soon. But it was when Conor McGregor fought Nate Diaz the second time. I
0: saw that on your Instagram. I was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, I'm that so was that- to me. That
1: was the the most greatest experience in the world. They went all five rounds, twenty five minutes of just stand up how'd you um, get into that i just um well i i saved up all my money at that time i believe the ticket was like 750 bucks plus plus the hotel um at that time i was dating a girlfriend that that liked ufc so she came to which was really cool uh but it was one of the best experiences of my life and the good thing is conor mcgregor man just just being a fan of him he's always giving these crazy um you know inspirational speeches like his mindset is also just different so i i I always would always, always listen to Conor McGregor interviews and just kind of try to take away something to, about his crazy mindset, especially about envisioning things um, is, is something spectacular.
0: Um, so, so, so going back, um, man, I went off on so many tangents. Okay, what were we talking about? Your uncle, the first, the David Beckham, um, and then shit, completely lost it. The pe- oh, cool people! So another problem with the, another problem with the, with our industry, and and, and and I did more like TV shows, commercials, movies, and you're doing the news. But it's not really nice people. It's super duper competitive. There's a lot of know it alls. People will act like they know shit when they really don't know shit. At least, and and it's like that from everyone. For, at least from my experience, from the guy who's setting up the lights to the guy who's like the star behind the camera. Everyone's kind of like you're more likely to meet assholes than nice people. Like no one's like courteous. If it always feels like you're getting, you know, like when you get off a plane, everyone turns into an asshole yeah, it's Like it's, a rush to get off the plane. You're like, dude, what the fuck is going on? Um, is, is it like, is it still, is it like that? Like I, I'm kind of out of that space and doing my own shit now, but is it still kind of like that? Like ev- everyone's kind of out for themselves.
1: I think, I mean, I, I think probably any industry that re, re- is, is involved in some type of media where it's movies, documentary, or like news, is, is going to have that type of environment, like you said, competitive, the know-it-alls, the the guys who think they, they know it all are like always stuck in a cubicle while we're on the field and like we're telling them what's really going on. Um, So, you know, it's it's very like that really competitive, got to earn it type of thing. Um, And it's chippy and it's competitive, but that, you know.
0: But you, you don't know. have to be that person to get ahead, right? I mean, you seem nice as shit to people.
1: No, no, I, I, I just think, you know, like just working hard and, and getting out there and just almost like, Almost having that you can't deny me type of attitude, I'm always going to show up attitude, I'm always going to be in your face attitude, Um, that's how I think you you just get biased just by doing that because nothing at the end of the day, whether there's assholes, um, missed opportunities or whatever, nothing is going to be actual like working hard and actual skill and actual, you know, for what I'm doing is like content and news. So if I'm always doing that in your face, always out there. There's there's no way you could avoid me. I'm going to be at your doorstep regardless. So, I think just when you're in the, you know, documentaries, news, uh movies, entertainment, you got to have that type of I'm always there. Um my dad my my dad really taught me the first one in the office, last one out of the office type of mindset and I think that's yes. what you got to really have out here.
0: Yes. Um Your parents, your parents are immigrants. And you go to the border now and how many times have you been to the border? Um,
1: I can't, I can't count. I would say maybe 10 now, maybe a little bit more. And And when
0: you go down there, how much time do you spend down there?
1: So it all, it all really, it all really depends. Um, a lot of my, yeah, it it kind of all depends because it's, it depends what's happening in the news, Ethan. It's also kind of depending on how much funding I could get for the trip. Um, so, the average I would say would would be four or five days. But I really like holy do, shit! I like to do a week and, and longer. So this last trip we did a full Monday to Monday seven days, and I think the trip before that I did a full ten days. So I like getting out there and just kind of getting the most out of a trip. And when we're out there, we're working from the daytime. Uh, All the way till nighttime. So we're documenting day stuff. We're documenting the night stuff. And we're doing that every day back to back to back. I think on this last trip was the first time ever that I'd gone 36 hours straight awake. And I think I went like 31 hours straight without eating, which I've never uh, had to do before. But that happened on this last one.
0: And did you drink a lot of coffee?
1: A lot of coffee, a lot of Red Bulls, a lot of water. Red Bulls are uh, my my best friend
0: uh, out there. Yeah, I went through I went through I went through a small red bull phase. You can't do that forever. You can't do that forever. Uh so if you let's say you did, let's say bare minimum you did you've been at the border 40 days, 12-hour days, 480 hours. Just to help people put that in perspective, that's um 10, that's 12 weeks of full-time work at the border holy shit. Okay. So now let's get down to business. So, so you go down there, what is going on at the border? How would you describe the border? And have you ever cried down there? Have you ever been like, like, Oh shit, this is what my parents did. Or, Oh fuck. These, these people are me. Like you have this moment where you're like, this is me, not because you're El Salvadorian, but because you're human. You're just like, Oh my God.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, I, I do, man. I think for me, I, I think the first, I had that moment um, when you're just looking at the little kids. And I think for me, I always think about.
0: Yeah, the um, kids, Jesus.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, what what would happen, you know, if my parents didn't cross, would this be me now in this caravan? You know, so I'm always, I always feel like I'm comparing myself to the young guys. You're looking, I'm, I'm meeting, you know, unaccompanied minors, but basically, how, you know, just to kind of give everyone.
0: Unaccompanied of- minors. Yeah. I can't, I-, I don't even believe it. I don't even believe it. I can't even believe it. Um,
1: Yeah, meeting unaccompanied minors. So you know, you ask the unaccompanied minors, like, "Hey, where are your parents?" They're always back at their home country. But
0: you mean like a ten-year-old kid?
1: Oh yeah, and some, and sometimes even younger. You know, younger all the time. We're we're meeting from five years, five-year-old all the way to seventeen-year-old unaccompanied minors that come to the border all by themselves. And basically, I would tell people that it's a humanitarian crisis. So just really, just take the politics out of it. Take the Democrat, take the Republican stuff out of it. These are human beings. Who are the most vulnerable people? These are not bad people. These these family units, the innocent folks. Um, they're just being taken advantage of by these smuggling groups and these cartels who that you just use that use them and look at them just as a product, almost like an Amazon product with a shipping label. Um, it's it's really some of the, the the saddest stuff in the world, especially when you meet the migrant women and children who have been sexually assaulted, raped on their way to the border. Um, I've met uh, family units. You know, when I asked them where the husband is, um, he's been kidnapped in the in, the, in Mexico. So a uh, common thing is the cartels and drug smuggling groups. They'll keep the the, the husbands because they'll use those males for drug runners or hitmen for the cartel. And I mean, these are just. I mean, I have countless of stories of just the sadness, but just to just a kind of put it all together. It's a humanitarian crisis at record numbers in numbers we've never seen before. We've already had 1 million encounters at the border, which has never happened in our history. We're on the road to 2 million. July and August were the first months ever. Border Patrol history, we had back-to-pack months with over 200... um, apprehensions at the border. NBC News is even reporting that these migrants have been reports of sexual abuse in these processing centers that are over capacity by over 500%. The New York Times even put out an article last month saying one out of every three unaccompanied minors that get released into the U.S. get lost in the system. We are losing Uh, migrant children into the foster system. We're losing them into the United States. We can't keep track of these people. We just had the fifteen thousand Haitians that hit our U.S. southern border, and we we released twelve thousand of them into the U.S. public, and more most likely going to lose track of those Haitians. Also, those twelve thousand Haitians were not tested for COVID nineteen before being released to the border, and according to Secretary Mayorkas, those Haitians have a twenty percent positivity rate when it comes to COVID. It's a real crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis. And we have to take the politics out of it and figure out how the hell to solve this thing.
0: Um, I want to put a couple things in perspective. The reason why I think Jorge said even NBC News and even the New York Times is because they don't want to tell this story. And so when you see um, uh, outfits like that telling that story, I think that's why Jorge said that. And the second thing I want to say is when Jorge says there's been a million encounters at the border, everyone should contextualize that. What that means is you have to ask yourself, what is a million? Okay, there's 240 million adults in the United States. That means one out of every 240 adults, if those people all were to cross the border and come in, would now be people who came from the south. I mean that those numbers are – are, I know they're hard to get your head wrapped around. Yes. I think the entire U.S. Postal Service might have a million people. I think the United States military is 1.3 million people. I mean, you have to contextualize it so you really understand the magnitude of human movement along this southern border. And even if even if we were to allow, ev- the the problem isn't. The problem is. There's there's obviously a bunch of problems, but one of the big problems that no one wants to acknowledge is, is that we need an immigration policy. We need an immigration plan, and that immigration policy and immigration plan isn't what's written down, isn't what's said, isn't the law. It's what's actually happening. And so what Jorge is describing is, is a policy that's a complete shit show, and it's abusive to everyone. It's abusive to the police who are watching the border. It's abusive to the people who live in the United States, and it's abusive to the people who are coming in. It has nothing to do with what they tell us it is. It's what it actually is, and it's a fucking mess it sounds like, especially – why? why, why? So I was homeless, Jorge, for two years and um, by choice, and my – sort of by choice. Um, my 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 peer group was all drug addicts and I was not a drug addict. And when I mean all drug addicts, I mean all drug addicts. So I mean, uh, so it was kind of a misnomer to call us homeless. It was really just dr- we were really drug addicts who had become homeless and people would be like, no, that's not true. Half of all homeless people are families, mothers and fathers, kids. Well, I didn't see those people. So that's fine. I, I might believe you. But I'm talking about just all the dudes and chicks who are out on the streets. They were all drug addicts. I wanted to be like Christ-like. I wanted to be like the Buddha and walk around barefoot and shit. But all my peers in the park, they were all drunk. They all smelled. They all didn't take care of themselves. They didn't have discipline. They didn't have struggle. They panhandled. They took, took, took. And, and they, and they were, they were, they did a disservice to humanity. If your measurement of your worth as a human being is, is what you provide to your fellow man, they were bottom of the fucking totem pole. They didn't provide shit. And 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 that's just the way it was. And I was homeless in California, which is uh, for those of you who don't know, it's on the west side of the North American continent, bordering the Pacific Ocean. And uh, so when I hear, I, I was going to draw that in comparison to, um, so, so so homeless people aren't really homeless people in my mind; they're drug addicts. What was I going to compare that to? I was going to compare that to something that's going on at the border who who are, so who are these people who are coming from the border why Th- that's what I wanted to compare it to like what are they really? you know how they say they're homeless people they're not homeless people they're drug addicts and their shit's falling apart and they can't get their shit together for the most part. I think that would be more accurate Wh- What are the people what's the label that truly fits these people who are coming across the border
1: um I would just you know they're coming for very Obviously poor countries with gang violence some type of violence, but um they're just regular i would say working class people
0: um low what scale. is that what do you mean give me give me even more like like who do they turn into when they come to this country
1: well that's that's a good question and it, it, it's it's hard to really just give you that right answer because the thing is we don't really have information so either they turn into just you know regular hard working citizens or they Turn into citizens that take advantage of our system, the welfare state, or they're you know, you're going to have those that are going to be criminals that come into this country. So it's hard to put a, a label on any of them. But um, when I'm down there and I'm like, let's say I'm in the real Grande Valley, I'm running into these large family units. So you know, the mom, you know, dad, um, kids, and sometimes it's it's difficult for the border patrol to even verify if that father really is the father. So they could just be calling themselves a family unit, but there's really no. Uh, way to verify but you're just you're encountering folks that actually want to be turned into the border patrol because they want to be processed they want to be released the reason why
0: so so that's what it looks like in your footage too they actually are looking so they're just stumbling around in the desert and they basically through habit and through they know where the border patrol is going to be so they actually aim for them because they want to get caught
1: the cartels and human smother groups direct them and point them to the right direction to be apprehended by border patrol this is done so um,
0: no one's trying to sneak across.
1: N- it's not that. It's it's. Uh, I'll kind of explain what what I'm about to say. But okay. Um, so you have is the cartels and human smugglers groups. They'll push these large caravan groups into Pacific air, air areas in the U.S. border, and the reason they do this is because they want to overwhelm border patrol with these large units. And they have, you know, the border patrol has to do the processing, separating family units from non-family units. It's a whole ordeal that they have to do, right, when they get hit with these caravans. The reason why these cartels and human smuggling groups do this is because when they do this, it opens up the border even more than it already is because it takes manpower away and have them to focus on these groups. So then they could smuggle drugs and human into this country. And I was speaking to a border patrol source that said uh, that fentanyl has increased into the country by over 600% already with this new tactic. Now... That's the state of Texas. That's what we're seeing in in the state of Texas, the majority. We're all in the state of Arizona, we're not seeing those family units as much. We're actually seeing drug runners, those single males that don't want to be caught. We call these gotaways. The gotaways are the migrants that come into the country and we don't apprehend. So these are the people that don't want to be apprehended by Border Patrol either because they got drugs, humans, or they have past criminal records that are meaning, you know, pretty serious charges that would get them deported. So that's a scary number is the number of gotaways, which is really – that it's hard to estimate because Border Patrol can't get an estimate because they they didn't apprehend these people. We have no information on them.
0: Um, how, do they – once they ca- – so that's interesting. So it's, it's kind of a um, push the people through, distract the police and take up their resources and then over here on the right bring the drugs in.
1: Exactly, and – that's why Border Patrol is overwhelmed because they're getting hit with these large family units. Then they're bringing these family units to, process center, to processing centers that are already overcrowded. We're talking about some of these processing centers are overcapacitated by 500%. And the people that are banking, who are bankrolling this in is these drug cartels and human smuggler groups that continue to push these large uh, migrant units up to the border. Um, according to NBC News Today, um, October, they could, we could get hit with as much as 400,000 uh, migrants at the U.S. southern border.
0: And do, and do they – what, what do they do with them? You, you said they let the Haitians in. Why did they let the Haitians in? Why isn't everyone just turned around? You can't do it?
1: So essentially what happened here is the Biden administration was taking such a political blowback of having those Haitians living under the bridge. It was bad optics for him. So he ordered the uh, Department of Homeland Security to clear out the family units as fast as they can – and just release them into the United States. So that's exactly what happened. Now the single Haitian males
0: got Is that legal? Rip- like, don't we have like an immigration policy?
1: Well, when I speak to Border Patrol, they also tell me that it's, it's impossible to vet that many people. It's, it's impossible to, to vet. So we, so these people are getting released into the United States in record numbers that we've never seen before being flown all over the country. And you could see it on my Twitter where I'm interviewing these people and saying, have you been tested for COVID-19 even before being released? They tell me they have not. And like I, like I said a little bit earlier, even Secretary Mallorca said that they're testing positive by COVID by a rate of 20%.
0: Are you tripping that you're seeing this? Is it kind of ever like heartbreaking to you? You're like, "Oh shit, what a mess." I always thought like as a kid life was like so much more organized than this.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's this is a uh, it's I'm trying to wake people up and tell them, you know, we have a humanitarian crisis here in the United States. I think when when Americans think humanitarian crisis, they think Yemen, they think the Middle East,
0: Ethiopia.
1: Exactly, but they don't think, they don't think here. So, I've I'm blown away by this and to this day I don't understand why the Biden administration doesn't get the handling of this. I don't know the political gain of not taking a handle to this. Um, his approval rating is actually really taking a hit um, when it comes to immigration.
0: Do – do CN, Does have you worked for CNN? No. Have you worked for The New York Times? No. N- neither of them have reached out to you?
1: Um, they've never reached, reached out to me to get my, my perspective on the border at all.
0: Uh, Washington Post? Nope. Do, do you have any peers – down there,
1: um, well, I've got a couple of other reporters that that go down there. Bill Malusion for Fox News does a great job.
0: Oh, oh, that sounded Armenian. What's his last name?
1: No, um, Malusion. He's a white guy, oh, but he does oh. a great job. Uh, Julio Rosas for for Town Hall Media also does a good job uh, down there at the border.
0: Are they? Do they go as much as you?
1: Yeah, we're we all kind of have that same mindset where we're kind of want to be out there as much as we can, and we kind of have a kind of a friend. I would say I would say like a friendly ish. Kind of just competition, but I, I I've I've gone on trips where I report alongside with Julio just because it, it's good to have another body out there watching your back.
0: Julio and the other guy's name is Illusion.
1: Yeah, Bill uh, Malugin, Eden, Julio Rosas, Julio Bill Rosas, Bill
0: Malugin.
1: Yeah, with Fox News, really good. He's a great I'm reporter. I'm telling
0: you, that guy's Armenian. Bill Malugin. Someone looked that up. Who's listening to the show? And, and uh, Julio Rosas
1: uh, with Town Hall, me- uh, with Town Hall Media, does a great job as well. H-
0: have you ever shared one of your Red Bulls with? Um, I'm trying to figure out how close you are with these guys. Have you ever shared a Red Bull with one of these guys? Like you had two, and you gave one up to one of them?
1: Uh, absolutely not. Red Bulls oh, cannot okay. be not shared. that close. Not that close.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um what what are, how did the border patrol treat you how uh, are they like glad you're there are they do they embrace you
1: so i mean it's it's very minimal when it happens but it still happens so it's very minimal when we get there and they're you know they're like hey you know they're, they're kind of like they don't give us any room to actually speak to the migrants or film they like tell us to stay away um that happens minimal the majority of the time they don't mind that we're there doing our thing and then when I speak to them, you know, um, they always tell me, "Hey, man, we really appreciate you being out here and just showing the American people what's going on, showing what we have to go through every single day and night." They don't see this part. I wanted to show you something really quick as well. Is um,
0: please, please,
1: is these you, uh,
0: real quick before? Oh shit! Yeah, what is these, this?
1: It's really quick. It's just these bracelets. So these are the bracelets that um, the migrants are are wearing when we encounter them. They're wearing these bracelets because it, um, the human smugglers or the cartels put this on these people to show that they have already paid their purchase um, to cross the river to the United States illegally. So this is just pro- more proof that these people are treated like shipping products. So different color uh, bracelets mean for different color groups. Uh, right here in my hand I have red and black ones and in Spanish they say entregas which means delivered. And these are put on the the, uh, the migrants. So we try to um, collect as much of these bracelets as we can to show the American people the human smuggling business that's happening down there.
0: Wait, I don't explain. Give me a little bit more with that. What? So, so how would that end up on? Let's say, let's some, let's say some lady wants to come to the United States. They say, okay, give me your $500. And then they put that wristband on her and they say, wait here. And then sometime in the next few days, someone goes, okay, move with this group. And they start crossing and then they have that bracelet on them the whole way.
1: Um, so, so wait a second. What's they, the point
0: of the bracelet?
1: So the bracelet is, is proved to show. And, and, and for that, for them, the point is, that these people have paid already to cross the river. So, without this bracelet, you essentially can't cross into a river. Okay. So the cartels and human smuggling groups have controlled this territory. So, they make sure that they get the compensation for you to cross over. So, two things happen here. So, either the migrants sell everything back home and they fund this trip with that money, or the cartel and human smuggling groups get connected with their family here back in the United States, which is very common, and the family in the United States will send that money over to the coyotes, also known as human smuggling groups or these migrants, essentially, they don't have enough money to pay, but they want to come. So essentially, they'll become indentured servants for the cartels and human smuggling groups here back in the United States after they, could, they, could, they get connected with their family members in the United States. So you can't cross um, without having this, uh, this basically proof of purchase because the, the, the human smugglers won't take you to the other side unless you have already paid your, paid your way over.
0: How did you get those?
1: I got them from um, – on my first trips, I would find them on the ground. And then after that, we started encountering the migrants actually wearing them. So I would actually just tell the migrants to take it off and, and give it to me because we, we would be collecting these to show the American audience uh, what's going on at the southern border.
0: Do they like – what? are they scared of you, the migrants?
1: No, but sometimes they're scared to speak on camera and omit something. So if I asked if they paid here, they'll say no if they're being filmed because I think they're just scared of any type of retaliation from a human smuggler or a cartel.
0: You had that footage of uh of of the I don't know what you call her. She's a cop, a Homeland Security or Border Patrol, and she's carrying a baby. Oh
1: yeah, so that moment was really special, man. So that happened in Del Rio. Um,
0: Tell we- me, where's Del Rio exactly for those of us who are like me, who are ge- geographically lame.
1: I'm I'm geographically lame too, but uh, the way I would explain it is that Del Rio is a border town in South Texas, so it's in the southern part okay. of Texas, border town. Like
0: below, like Houston, how far from Houston?
1: Oof, I wouldn't know, brother. To be honest. Um, okay, I'll look on a map later. Okay, that, that area of Del Rio was at that time when we were down there, they were getting hit by a huge wave of Venezuelan migrants who were crossing over. So they were crossing over the the river. The woman that you see there is she's actually a Texas State Trooper. So Go- Governor Greg Abbott actually launched an operation called Operation Lone Star which sent Texas state troopers and national guard to the Southern border to help border patrol agents. So with, um, so this, this Texas state trooper was at the Southern border uh, due to that operation. And this one moment is really special because you see a migrant woman who just, um, who just got across the river, who was struggling to get on um, the Texas soil on American land. So she hands her baby up and this is where the Texas state trooper, she comes in and she lifts the baby and, She also has a moment where she kind of looks into the baby's eyes, cradles it, almost cares for it. And you could, you could also see the migrant woman climb up. She, she, she grabs her baby. Then her, the Texas state trooper and that baby just kind of have this special moment. And it kind of just shows more of a human element. And that's the stuff that never makes the headlines. When these Texas state troopers or border Patrol save people, save migrants, save children. And I thought that was a very special moment. And the very next day, I actually returned to that spot, and that Texas State trooper walked up to me, and she actually thanked me for uh, filming that video and posting it, and she felt that that was a very special moment that people needed to see.
0: How did she know you posted it? She follows you?
1: Uh, that, that one clip just went viral, so I, I figured that it got to her somehow because it, it just went really viral online. I saw it shared by everyone. It would, it played on the news. Um, like I said, it was just one of those moments that, that really spoke for themselves.
0: It's, cra- it's crazy. It's going to be even crazier to you when you have kids. I mean, I know it's crazy now because you see yourself in it and you imagine yourself as a kid. But when you see that like someone has to hand their kid to someone else so they can get out of the water, it's, it's no bueno. It's not these. So, so when you say it's a humanitarian crisis, can you, why is it a humanitarian crisis? What, what, why does it have to be so dramatic? Why can't it just be, okay, these people lived in, in fucked up countries and there's more opportunity in the United States, and so they're just coming here? What, what What's the scary part? What's well, I'm, the, I, the part? reason why I the, call the, it
1: a humanitar- humanitarian crisis at our southern border is because um, we essentially have all these humans, you know, refugees, whatever you want to name them, crashing our border at one time overwhelming the system, meaning that border patrol can't even keep up with these people, the processing centers. And it's getting to the point that even if we wanted to help these people, we just can't because they're now being taken advantage of. They're being taken advantage of by drug cartels. Like I said, the rapes, the assaults, the journey that these people are going through. So the reason I call it a humanitarian crisis is because we have essentially over 1 million people that we let into the country. Um, we have hundreds and thousands that are living in these processing facilities that, need help but are getting sexually assaulted that are being taken advantage of even, like i said even the new york
0: times put you mean up- like in our holding facilities they're so crowded that people are being raped in there like yes you and are they being raped by like our police officers or or, or by just other, other migrants other, other migrants other uh, esp- in there.
1: other other migrants especially those single adult males of course and you know, we have to think, you know, it's the children who are, who are being human trafficked, human smuggled into this country. Um, when, we, when we release these unaccompanied minors, you know, um, there's really nowhere to verify if they're really being released to a family member or not. You know, for all we know, that could just be someone else on the other side saying that. And all of a sudden now they have a minor that um, we have no information that they're most likely going to get lost in the, to, in the system. We don't even have enough parents to adopt these kids. And if we did, the foster care system is known for losing thousands of thousands of kids into the system that cannot be trusted. And these, ki- you know, these people really don't have a voice anymore. And they're being taken advantage of at record levels that we've never why seen are
0: they, before. Why do they think now is a good time to come? Is it because the rhetoric isn't, t- is it like, is it that Trump had all this nar- Well, was it less during when Trump was in office and less when Obama was in office?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was less um, it was less when Obama was in office. I mean, we were, still, we were still getting hit by a migrant search, but nothing like it was now. Even under Trump, it really uh, deterred. The, really, the reason why it declined under Trump is because the policies that he instilled. So one of the big policies that he put in place was the Remain in Mexico policy. So for the viewers who don't know this, if you were a migrant and if you cross into the country illegally and looking to seek asylum, you would get a court order and you would get released into the United States. The problem with this is that border patrol told me that only 13% of that time, those migrants even come to the court. So essentially we're just letting you into the United States. So there's no consequences. And migrants knew that when Trump came into the office, he put the remain in Mexico policy, meaning that if you did this, you would get a court order, but you would have to wait in Mexico and you would have to wait in the border town In the border towns, are very dangerous for migrants because they're they're most likely always controlled by a cartel or a smuggling group. It's gonna, So what would they
0: do? How would they how would they enforce that? People are coming across like what would they do in that in that instance like you were filming those people coming across the that Rio Grande River? What would have what would have happened during the Trump era? They would have, scooped they would them have up got, and drove them back.
1: They would have got apprehended by Border Patrol. They would have got processed, but they would have been given a court order, but they would have been uh flew back uh into a border town in Texas. I mean in uh in Mexico. So they would have had to remain in Mexico. To that court order. So, for the thinking for a migrant, okay. was why would I risk my life? Why would I pay a cartel smuggling group to do all of this only be told to wait in the border town of Mex- Mexico? Which the chances of me getting kidnapped are pretty high as a migrant. So, the risk wasn't there. The problem now is that when we transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, the Biden administration put the bat signal out that they, you know, and this is not my words, this is Kamala Harris on the campaign trail literally said. If you come here illegally and want to seek asylum, we are not going to deport you to your home country. We look at that as inhumane. What Kamala Harris and the Biden administration essentially did is they gave these cartels and the smuggling groups their next marketing or sales tactic now. Because now they could have used that to convince the migrants the time to come is now. Also, Biden's first day in office through an executive order removed the remaining Mexico policy. There was, a, there was a Supreme Court judge. Recently, who put who said that the Biden administration must follow that remaining Mexico policy? From our reporting on the ground, we have not seen any proof that that policy is being instilled and being followed right now. And and um, so until that changes, I will report something different. But yeah, it's just like I said, it's it's overwhelming wow. what's happening right now.
0: So, and what you're saying is, if if we're to just look at it with the most altruistic eyes possible, that. That the Biden administration had this idea that, that it was inhumane to make them wait in the border towns and to do the most benevolent thing we can and greet people and welcome anyone who wants to come into this great country to come in here. And they would come in here and we would set a court date for them and we'd figure out what their situation is. And instead, what you're saying is is that actually backfired and it created more of a humanitarian crisis because so many people have tried to come in that it's impossible to execute on that plan.
1: Exactly, and the situation has got. So- it's kind
0: of like what people were worried about about people overwhelming hospitals with COVID, but it's actually is happening at the border. It never happened in the United States, but it's happening at the border. Yeah, it's happening at the
1: border, and it's getting to a point where now Biden's approval rating is getting hit by it. Um, like I said, those Haitians living under the bridge, the optics were so bad that he ordered DHS to clear them out by next last Friday, which they did. And if they don't get a, a handling of that immigration problem, it's going to be the one policy or the one issue. That takes Biden down in 2024, possibly.
0: What? What do um? I know you can't speak for all of them, but like, where I live, there's a there's a ton of uh, field workers. There's a ton of I don't know if they're Mexican. I just I lump all you guys up who are south of San Diego as Mexican, just because I just that's what I do. All my friends, all my brown brothers have all been f- Mexican, right? So. Um, what what and and our whole this is this is I live in Steinbeck country right so many field workers here so many hardworking Mexicans here I mean this is like it's crazy and um and and and, and but, but they've spread into everything now right like my I have Mexican friends who owns gyms barber shops fucking you name it school teachers doctors they're fucking everywhere mayors congressmen you I mean you see it you live in California and they're they're flourishing here and. Um, and even maybe some El Salvadorians like Jorge Ventura, um, but uh, uh, El Salvadorians. Um, but um, what do they what my friends who live in um, Salinas and Aromas and who are Mexican, they, they keep talking about something called Lexit. And they're basically saying that like all of their small businesses were are, were closed down during this this so-called pandemic and that that they're they're flipping the script. They're running from the from the Democrat Party and they're and they're turning to the GOP. Do you see that?
1: Um, I do see that. And the data even uh, backs it up. Um, even in, in this last election, Trump had the most uh, Latino uh, vote that any Republican president has ever had in history. When I'm down in South Texas, all those border towns, those border towns all used to vote overwhelmingly Democrats. So in 2016, they all swung uh, to Hillary Clinton by like over 80%. This past election, those all all, the, all those counties by the border, they actually went conservative. And I think, um, you know, and those border towns are overwhelmingly Latino. They're like 80% Latino down in, Rio, Miguel, in the Rio, McAllen, that Rio Grande Valley. So we're seeing the Latinos kind of say, hey, you know what? We're not seeing the Democratic Party fight for us anymore, for the working class. A lot of the majority of Latinos are obviously in the working class. And they're seeing that, and they're feeling that, especially um, not only with all these issues with immigration, but it's also a lot of the woke stuff, a lot of the Latin X talk, and the <laughs> um, you know the <laughs> transgenderism things like that. That's a big turnoff to old school Latinos. For you know, for people don't know, uh, Latinos are heavily against abortion, so they're very conservative when you speak to them on these issues. So
0: poster children for Catholicism.
1: Yeah, we're seeing that wave right now, and like I said, even the data uh, backs that up. And I said. Like I said before, this one immigration issue that this is only going to swing more um, Latinos to the Republican Party if Joe Biden can't get a handling of this, which it looks like he doesn't have the urgency to.
0: One of the one of the things that I, I was I had a bunch of people at my house one night for dinner. This is a couple of years ago, and people were talking about how fucking racist Trump was. Racist Trump was, and I fucking hated Trump. Right, and I had voted for whoever I can't remember, and. Um, and, and they were talking about how racist Trump was and all this bad shit he said about um, Mexicans and Latin and Latins. And I was like, OK. So I started going on the Internet and I started looking for it. I started looking for the video. I started looking for the writings. And I couldn't find it. And I started seeing where they took everything he said out of context, that actually he didn't say anything racist. He didn't say anything bad about Latins. He didn't say anything bad about Mexicans. He just basically said that he was concerned that they maybe even beyond concerned that they're sending their worst people. That, hey, we can't let them sit. We can't let these countries send their rapists. And then it was conflated to the fact that he was suggesting that all Latins were rapists. And it wasn't even close to that. Am I right? And I, and, and that's what made my first like, that's when I first like put my ears up. I was like, holy shit. Because it's pretty, it's pretty, growing up in California, it's a pretty serious accusation to call someone racist. It's like, you do not want to be accused of being racist. It sucks. No, absolutely. And and, uh, and so is is the guy racist? Because I can't find anything on it, and yet all my liberal friends want to call him racist, and I'm like, well, can you just show me, like, where he said Mexicans are bad or Latins are bad? Because I, I can't find it.
1: No, I can't find it either. It's almost like the same comparison when they, they almost try to uh, compare this guy to, like, Hitler or something. It's, like, it's pretty ridiculous and outlandish, and, you know, everyone has their opinion to themselves. I haven't seen anything racist, and at the end of the day, if he was racist— um then you know, you would have to say something to to all those Latinos that voted for him in twenty twenty. Like I said, the Republican right. Party has never made this much progress with the with the Latino vote ever in their history.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's like almost like it backfired for them because someone like me, like like I wanted to see that. And when I saw that it was made up, like I, I don't like to see someone being accused of shit that they didn't do. It it it's not cool. Um Jorge, what will you do next? What happens what like do you get to do anything fun? Like will you get to are you just going to be just chasing wild horses for the next 10 years? Like, like, are you going to get to cover anything without <laughs> anything that doesn't want to make you cry?
1: Um, <laughs> well, look, man, you know, anything could happen. I, I, I really try to throw myself uh, a lot of stories. I get ignored. I obviously lo- love the frontline stuff, um, but anything could happen, you know, every, um, ever since, I would say I started, it's always been a new, every year has been such a new journey. Like I said, last year, the, the whole summer was filled with riots. Obviously, I've never covered anything like that, so that was something new. Even when the riots were done, I came back to California, then I, I did a mini-doc on all the restaurants that were going out of business. So I really got to focus on the small business industry. I also then started focusing on interviewing all the parents who whose kids were having mental health issues with the constant lockdowns in California. And then the border came up, so you know what? It always changes, um, but I'm always looking to tell that story that is just almost like it's getting ignored, or you're just not getting the full scope. So I always do my best, um, but I'm ready for for new challenges. I just got done, like I said, I, I, this year I, I made a mini doc on the restaurant industry, but I just got done with my very first investigative documentary. It's gonna be full forty minutes long, where we, you know, investigated these cartels out in the desert. So that was the first time I ever done something like that, and. I'm gonna just continue to do the best I can to improve my storytelling for my audience. Um like I like I was telling you before, even just approve a little bit now with my camera equipment, wanna wanna take it to the next level and really just make almost movies for people with with news and tell stories and travel and you know I'm I think one of the gifts I had, or gifts if you want to call it, maybe just the lucky trade or whatever, is that when I'm in those dangerous uh, situations, you know, my drilling is going through the roof and I feel more alive than ever and as long as I could get that feeling, I, I, I will do whatever it takes to, to chase that. But really just, just focus on telling stories that Americans care about, giving them a different viewpoint. And, um, you know, I feel very blessed that people really support it and they've really been taking, uh, you know, taking a liking to it. And they really support me a big way because um, sometimes we do need funding when it comes to the road and, and people, you know, do donate and support. And I think that speaks volumes. That means that people trust what uh, they see and we have a really beautiful relationship with the audience.
0: You have a Patreon account?
1: Yeah, I have a Patreon, have a Venmo, PayPal, Cash App. And, um, you know, so support any way people can. And it really helps us out because it literally goes back into our frontline reporting, out there getting on the grind. If, if, actually, if it wasn't for people donating, we wouldn't actually been able to stay for a full week on our last trip. So, um, you know, really grateful that people really support. But I think it gets but people get a lot of value for it. People learn, they get informed, they get a, a, a part of the story that you really don't get anywhere else.
0: And it's, uh, your Instagram is at Jorge Ventura, just like it sounds J with, uh, George with a J, Jorge Ventura, all one word. And then is there a link tree or something in there where people can see all these different avenues of getting access to your, your stuff?
1: Yeah, exactly. So the, the Instagram is, it's my first name and last name. So it's Jorge Ventura TV. So don't forget the TV at the end. And if you click the link,
0: Oh, the- uh, they don't even need that. You're the big dog. Yeah, yeah. So you if just you- put in Jorge Ventura; he'll pop up at the top. Yeah, sure. Pop up.
1: And if you click the link in the bio, it will it will direct you to everything that that you need to be directed to. But like I said, guys, we have got a really great documentary coming out next week that I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy and find informative. Is this
0: the restaurant one?
1: This is going to be actually on the cartels in the in the desert. So the the restaurant right. one we 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 released in the beginning of the year when those lockdowns were really crazy here in LA County. LA County was the only county. That did a uh, band on indoor and outdoor dining. So it was the only county where restaurants were were stuck on takeout only. That's what the documentary is actually called. So if you just Google takeout only, you could, you could find that on the restaurant industry.
0: How many, I heard 30% of all restaurants in California close their doors forever. Is that true?
1: That is true. I, I'm thinking there's even more, but we're waiting for those more, those figures, I think, to come out as a number to so just keep coming out. But at least 30%, absolutely
0: fucking unbelievable it's insane man
1: and all those middle class jobs that go to go away too. all those all those servers and waiters i mean you have to think about that impact on them as well
0: hey and anyone who does talk shit about immigrants or migrants these are the jobs those people had these are the jobs my mom and dad had they worked at restaurants they cleaned dishes like my mom and dad my dad came to this country and had all those jobs cleaning houses while they went to school all that shit my mom and my dad it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. And the crazy um, thing,
1: bro, is is you know like, um, you know the the Democratic Party uh, more itself tries to aim itself as being the the party of the black and brown people. I mean, these lockdowns in California they affected the black and brown communities on every level the most. The, where, the most. Um, all the, the businesses, small most, businesses that got shut down, all the black and brown kids who couldn't go to school. Of course. Um, that, that put their parents in a very horrible situation when they when they did the online school when these black and brown parents have to go to work. So they always vouch for the black and brown people. That's the people that got the most impacted by the, by the ongoing lockdowns.
0: So this morning I did a, a podcast with a gentleman named Corey Allen. He's a, a dude out of York, Pennsylvania. He was uh, in prison and he found CrossFit. And when he got out of CrossFit, he opened a CrossFit gym, right? And uh, he, he's now as a successful uh, – well – he, he, he's trying to run a successful gym and he's got an amazing clientele, but it's been extremely difficult, right? Because his gym has been basically been forced to be closed down for the last 18 months. Right. And, uh, he's a black guy. He, he, or, or my new word is to call people with black skin melanated. Cause I don't really care what skin color you're you, you have. But, um, and he's telling me he's all, Hey, something really weird happened. He told me this this morning, in the podcast and I go, what? And he goes, a conservative group, reached out to me and I go, yeah. And he goes, and, and, and a bunch of small businesses in my town and they got together and they're supporting us to stay open so that we don't go out of business. And I go, Oh, that's awesome. I go, why is that weird? He goes, cause I'm not conservative. I'm like, oh, interesting. And the whole time I, I just am thinking of myself, and they paint the fucking conservatives as the fucking white supremacists and the liberals as the non white supremacists. And and I used to be liberal, so I, I love that narrative. But it's the liberals policy that closed the business down of the black man, and it's the white supremacist party, the conservative reaching out to to keep moving. And I didn't point it out to him in the podcast because I was trying to just be cool. But fuck, man, it just it it just it breaks my heart that like I, I feel like I have to say it so I can point it out to people because people won't know it unless I like really point at it. Like, hey, look,
1: no, there's man. another example. Gotta say, we we got to have the, these conversations and not not be afraid to have them. Call out the establishments. Obviously, they you know Gavin Newsom was in Napa Valley enjoying his um, expensive dinner, his his fancy wine, while he closed down restaurants and businesses and nail salons and barbershops all over the uh, all over the state. And really impacted those people and, and you know to me i got to really see their pain man because you know i interviewed restaurant owners waiters and servers that cried to me in our interviews expressing all the pain they had to go through um all the lost income their dreams shattered and just to, to just to see the, the politicians just um doing the complete opposite living in in, in her pocket seat it, it really felt that um this is what one um restaurant owner t- t- told me here in my hometown you know she felt like we were being the peasants and they were really being the Kings that this is the true example of elitism. And we were seeing it in every way.
0: It's what happened regardless, whether that's the way the words you want to use or not, that's what happened.
1: And, um, you know, at that time I tried to do, to do my best to just cover all those stories and give a voice to those small business owners, the working class communities, and especially also the parents who had their kids in deep depression, man, over, over those school lockdowns. I was speaking to parents that, that their, their kids were, um, suicidal, cutting themselves. I met a dad in Washington State whose son shot himself in the mouth um, because of the ongoing school lockdowns. These are the stories that, that for some reason, never make it onto mainstream media. They don't want to talk about these problems. Um, So we try to just highlight that as much as we can, man.
0: Why do you have an Android instead of an iPhone?
1: I had an Android my whole life, and for some reason, I'm just so used to it. I don't know if I could ever switch. I might be switching soon. We'll see um man I-
0: there's only one reason to switch to iphone it's because of that i message, because they got us all hooked on it like i wouldn't care if you were on a droid if i was on a droid
1: right but it's uh, just
0: it's just the sms is all fucked up
1: yeah people people make fun of me for that so um i don't know how long i'll go with the droid but uh we'll we'll see if we could we could continue lasting with it
0: okay i'm not hating i'm not hating um do you work out
1: Yes, try to do gym once a day, five times a week. Um, it's good, obviously, for the uh, physical, but it's more importantly for the mental. It's a good. Uh, I love it because it's a good one hour. Where I get it really clear in my mind, get that workout in, and it really helps me out mentally. Then um, you know, I, I kind of make it made a joke about it, but it's like you know, trying to get buff before, uh, before they put us in the gulag.
0: Yeah, and uh, <laughs> right, and uh, you won't have to go. You're you're El Salvadorian. Just just. Pull the race card. You're good. Um, what, there's things that you can do at 26 that if you're in shape, that your your obese counterparts can't do. And I know that because I was a documentary filmmaker and a CrossFitter at the same time, and I could do crazy shit that other people couldn't do, like you know, just go on a 10 mile hike with a 10 pound backpack and all my camera gear through the mountains of China and just like deserts of wherever. Um, is that important to you to stay re- physically strong? Run, jump, climb, hold your gear grab a baby whatever you need to do
1: oh absolutely man i think i think what, what taught me that was back in the rights because back in the rights it almost felt like you were covering a war because you had all this heavy gear and it was just you doing the trek you know during these rights there's no uber there's no there's no car systems working so it's it's everything on you all the time and right there i really got tested so ever since then and i wasn't hit, hitting the gym a lot during the rights i was i had i had a bad diet i was always eating mcdonald's eating um, after that experience, I said, I absolutely want to change it up. So I'm eating a lot healthier now in the gym and it's just such a big difference. It's such a big advantage. And you can feel it, man. When I'm not, when now, now I'm out there, I'm um, working out or or, or I said, lock, working those long hours at the border and making the trek um, miles and miles. It, it feels good. I feel a lot better. And, um, I'm going I'm to co- continue doing it. And then, you know, it's always nice to get the compliment from the female. So that always keeps you going.
0: Yes. Girls are, are cool. Girls are cool. <laughs> uh, Jorge. Thank you. It's crazy. What time did you wake up this morning?
1: I think today, um well my sleep schedule has been all over the place because I just got from Cal- I just got back from California. So I woke up at four in the morning out of nowhere, even I think I didn't wake up till ten. But usually I wake up at seven AM. But my sleep schedule gets got all flipped up and crazy when I was in Texas because we would just stay up till five in the morning, four in the morning working, and so it just got really messed up. So I'm trying to get it back to that um So hopefully we we get it back. But I think today woke up at 10 just because I woke up at five out of nowhere and like it's all kind of messed up and jet lagged and all that good stuff.
0: All right. So it's a crazy long day for you today. Thank you so much. Hey, if you ever want to reach out, we have each other's phone numbers. I'm going to watch you closely. I'm sure I'm going to bug you again for the next big story you break. But if there's ever any time I can help you with anything, please don't hesitate. I'll repost anything you want. I'll have you on whenever you want. I'll do whatever you want. You need a, a ride from the San Francisco airport, you give me a call.
1: Awesome. No, thank you, bro. I really appreciate you having me on. And, uh, I gotta say, this is for sure, uh, one of the, the more, uh, funner conversations that I've had, uh, doing this type of stuff. So, th- no, really thank you, man. This was a blast.
0: This is your dress rehearsal for Rogan. You're 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 <laughs> headed to you're headed to the top. I I promise you, you're headed to the top. You are cool as shit.
1: No, thank you, brother. We definitely got to do this again. Um, I'm gonna send you that um as soon as we get approved. As soon as I get my, my that trailer, um for this new documentary, man. I'm I'm gonna send it your way, and I would I would love any type of feedback you got for us.
0: Yep. And, bam, we're no longer live. Awesome. Woo, that was good, man. That was fun. You're easy. You're so easy. (laughs) You're so easy. Hey, that's so cool. All the people you know, you're doing it.
1: No, I appreciate appreciate you, man. And um, no, that was I said. That was a lot of fun. I'll keep you posted on a lot of the stuff that we got, man. And um, I'll send I'll send you this trailer pretty soon. I I know we're not too far from getting the proof. So as soon as I get that trailer proof, send it your way. You give us some feedback, and um, we'll love to come on again soon, man
0: okay cool you know I, i'm starting to get more and more big mma fighters on in a couple of days i have alexander volkanovsky coming on okay
1: cool, cool stuff. Um,
0: if there's ever a time you want to uh dabble back in that i i, I always I have no issue always having someone else on and tag teaming my guests so maybe awesome. I, maybe we can uh we can uh build a build a relationship and a friendship here and, and use each other yeah get some synergy
1: no i agree man i really appreciate it. this was a this was great it was fun and um Thank you, man. Really, really appreciate it. Take care, brother. And let's definitely speak soon.
0: Awesome. All right. Have a good night. Good night, brother. Good night.